Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome to the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health, a meeting ground for thought leaders, policymakers, scientists, and students to engage in a dynamic way. Today's event is being live streamed on the internet on both the forum's website and the Huffington Post website. So I would also like to welcome our many online viewers. Communication is vital to public health. We value enormously not just the research we do here and the instruction we carry out with our students, but also the way we put out the findings, the evidence from our research. And that's why we engage actively in translating knowledge so that it can empower people to make better decisions. And the forum is meant exactly to be a meeting ground. Uh, we've developed the forum webcast as state-of-the-art communication tools to empower people with the, with, with the knowledge they need to drive their own lives in a healthy way, to empower policymakers to do evidence-based healthy policies to empower health professionals so that their practice is informed by knowledge. Now, a few people have experienced more success as communicators to the public than our distinguished, distinguished guest this afternoon, Ariana Huffington, Chair, President, and Editor-in-Chief of the Huffington Post Media Group. I'm also honored to welcome Harvard President Drew Faust, who uh, in a moment will introduce Ariana. The forum has been fortunate to collaborate with the Huffington Post on the past on several very successful live webcasts about public health. These are consistently among the most watched um, of the forums that, that we carry out, and they continue to draw thousands of viewers on demand. Following Ariana's remarks, uh, she will be joined on stage by Jay Winston, Associate uh, Dean for Health Communication for a conversation, and then uh, we will devote substantial time to questions and answers from the audience. It is now my pleasure to turn the microphone over to President Drew Faust. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, Julio, for that welcome. And uh, thank all of you for coming. It's just such a great pleasure to be here at the School of Public Health and also to have the opportunity to introduce Ariana Huffington. Uh, born and raised in Greece, Ariana has created a remarkable life, uh, taking her um, from Greece to England, where she attended Girton College at Cambridge and became the uh, first international student to be head of the Cambridge Union and one of the very first women to be head of the Cambridge Union. So her leadership qualities were in evidence early on. She has, throughout her dynamic career, traversed the political spectrum and the globe, and her thinking has evolved and, cha and changed in ways that have influenced all of us. She has most recently redefined media in important ways with the path-breaking and influential Huffington Post of which she is the chair, president, and CEO. 
In 2005, Ariana launched the Huffington Post, bringing a radical vision to create a site that would be a leading, vo a leading voice in what was then called the blogosphere. <coughs> the HPOF um, has had such a significant role in changing the place of social media in our systems of information and news. And she has brought to all of our lives a new way of opening participation by consumers and by people who used to be the passive recipients of information, changing them into active creators of news and of content. <coughs> the uh, Huffington Post has won a Pulitzer Prize, but that hardly underscores or demonstrates the significance and reach of its <coughs> influence. But as the title of Ariana's new book suggests, and the title is Thrive, the third metric to redefining success and creating a life of well-being, wisdom, and wonder. You can see from that title how she has always understood that success is about much more than just overt uh, signs of accomplishment. She has urged us to be fearless. She is eager for us all to thrive. Now, I first met Ariana at Davos, and we were in a reception and began speaking with one another, and we discovered that we had in common uh, certain views and interests in sleep. This has been, at Davos, you always want more of it. But our interests transcended that particular setting and that particular moment. Uh, I am a recovered or recovering, depending what night it is, insomniac. And so I have understood sleep in new ways since this little aspect of health and well-being entered my life. And Ariana describes herself as a sleep evangelist. I'm sure she'll say more about that in her remarks to you. But I must say, in my role in life, I know that, I think as Donna Shalala said to you yesterday, if you're going to lead, you have to sleep. So that is one dimension of her commitment uh, to an engagement with public health and well-being. And I know you're going to hear many more. Now, when I'm not sleeping and not doing my day job, I am an erstwhile historian. And as a historian, I'm very interested in primary sources and data and so forth. And so I tried to find out a little bit about Ariana beyond what was immediately available to me. And it turns out that Boston is actually the home of a very important person from Ariana's past. She's looking at me, oh my god, what am I about to present to her? <laughs> but this is a person who uh, is uniquely situated to share with us uh, some firsthand observations about Ariana and her accomplishments. So please join with me in welcoming Mayor Walsh's chief of staff, graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Business School, and Ariana's former chief of staff, Daniel Coe. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, President Faust. Thank you, Dean Frank. Hi, boss. How are you? It's an honor to be here to help introduce my former boss and mentor. As some of you know, I've had the privilege for working with both Tom Menino and now Mayor Marty Walsh as Chief of Staff. Some may wonder what these two tough Boston natives from Hyde Park and Dorchester have in common with a University of Cambridge grad media maven from Athens, Greece. <laughs> to this I say plenty. One, all see the media as a vehicle for positive change. So Ariana, if you could talk to the Globe and the Herald about being a little more positive to us, we'd appreciate that. 
Two, all took a risk on a nervous, sometimes awkward half Asian kid from Andover who had no business having the role he was in. And three, all have very distinct accents that I had no choice but to grow to understand and love. People ask me if Ariana's third metric leadership style is for real. To this, I have a small story. My first week on the job, I was so nervous. I wanted to prove myself to Ariana that she was right to hire me. So I worked the only way I knew how, emailing at all hours of the night, skipping meals, burning myself out. When I asked Ariana how I was doing at the end of the week, I thought I would get feedback about my work product or how I was fitting in with my colleagues. Instead, she looked at me concerned and said in her trademark accent, Dan, I'm very concerned. You're not getting enough sleep. <laughs> That's when I knew I had a different kind of boss, one that preached taking time out of your day to reflect. You know, she has nap rooms in the office, which I'm really advocating for for City Hall these days. <laughs> one that doesn't expect people to answer emails after 5 p.m. or on weekends. And one where giving back is not just encouraged, but a requirement. Judging from her success and judging from the gratitude of those who have had the fortune to work with her, I'd say she's onto something. So please join me in welcoming my dear former boss, role model, and friend, Ariana Huffington. Well, that was a wonderful, completely unexpected surprise. <laughs> Thank you so much, President Faust. Thank you so much, Julio. Thank you, Dan. And um, how much sleep are you getting now? <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here. Um, I, I just feel that being in this place that under your leadership has been such an incredible um, ground of innovation, but also implementing all these new ideas. I think this is really what is so remarkable about your leadership. It's not just coming up with pioneering, groundbreaking research, but also making sure that it's implemented in ways that changes people's lives. And I was delighted to meet your wife, and uh, you gave me this great line that I'm going to be using now about evidence-inspired um, evidence-inspired advocacy. Ad advocacy. And advocacy-inspired advocacy evidence. Because I feel that this is the moment we're living in, when we need evidence, we need data, but we also need to be implementing it. And um, I feel we're in a moment of a kind of a perfect storm when it comes to health. Because uh, we see, on the one hand, that the way we have been uh, Hi, Tom. I see all these people from my past. This is like, a, hi, Ariana, this is your life. Um, we see that the way we have been running our lives and running our companies is no longer working. It hasn't been working for a long time, but now we have the data to prove that it's not working. Uh, we see that we have um, two-thirds of our healthcare costs, for example, here in the United States come from preventable, chronic, often stress-related diseases. And uh, we recognize that there will never be enough money to actually take care of our health care if we don't change the way we live, the way we think, what we eat, how much we sleep, all these factors of life which we have been treating as, as trivial and insignificant, but we are now realizing are absolutely central to how we live our lives and how healthy we are. 
And I had my own wake-up call seven years ago when I collapsed from exhaustion, burnout, and sleep deprivation, hit my head on the way down, and broke my cheekbone, got four stitches on my right eye. And that's what started me on this journey that led to the publication of Thrive, this journey of redefining what success is, which for me is a great entry point in terms of how we live our lives. So as I was lying um, in a pool of blood on the floor of my office, uh, I started asking myself this question. You know, I, I know by conventional definitions of success, I'm successful, but by any sane definition of success, if you're lying in a pool of blood, you're not. <laughs> And then going from doctor to doctor, from MRI to echocardiogram to find out if there was something really medically wrong with me, like a brain tumor, a heart problem, we discovered there wasn't anything wrong with me medically, but just about everything wrong with the way I was leading my life. And so I started collecting data around sleep because I was getting four to five hours sleep. And as Drew said, I became such a sleep evangelist that the Harvard School of Medicine um, sleep division invited me to join their executive council. <laughs> and so then I started getting even more data as a result of that. And uh, I realized that actually sleep is like a miracle drug. If you look at all the things that it does, um, it sounds a little bit like the kind of label that you see on snake oil in the 19th century, except it's actually for real. And then if you look at a lot of the research, I mean, I actually pulled out all the Harvard School of Medicine research that I quote in the book, and it is absolutely amazing. I really didn't have to go to any other university. Um, but the information um, on the relaxation response and how it reduces inflammation, augments our immune system, finds a range of conditions from arthritis to high blood pressure, all by relaxing, getting more sleep, meditating, praying, having quiet time in our lives. It is absolutely stunning that perhaps the way that these changes are actually going to be implemented more uh, quickly is by seeing the cost we are paying when we don't implement them. In terms of dollars, we have um, $300 billion that American business wastes every year because of stress. Then there is the problem of what has been described as presentism, which is basically employees who are at their desks but too burnt out to do anything useful except perhaps update their Facebook profiles. <laughs> so pulling all that together and then looking at how creativity and innovation are also impaired, the things that we most value, um, at work is beginning to create that other element of the perfect storm, which is actually people um, making different choices in their lives. And because of all the digital technology that's now at our fingertips, the emergence of the quant quantified self, as it's been called, we actually have the data that tells us how much more effective we are when we have taken care of ourselves. And so I see these changes happening at multiple levels. Obviously, the individual level, 
wherever we find ourselves, whether we are at the top of the world in terms of our careers or struggling to put food on the table, we see the connection between uh, taking care of our human capital and resilience. And we need to move away from seeing it all as a zero-sum game. Like these are like the 24 hours of the day, so if I take an extra hour for sleep, I have less hour to devote to my career or my children. Because really, what we're dealing with is not time, but energy. And the truth is that when we are recharged and renewed, which has always been like part of every philosophy, every religion, every um, manual about how to live, then we are much more effective at whatever it is that we are working on or wanting to achieve. And I know it's a paradox, but at the same time, we realize that our jobs, however magnificent, are not what defines us. Very often, the entry point on this, on this journey is something bad happening. It's my hitting my head on my desk. It's Drew Faust talking about um, her breast cancer. It's somebody losing a child. Um, that's the entry point that makes us look at what do we really value. And I was recently at a friend's memorial. And when I listened to the eulogy, I realized that, in fact, our eulogies have nothing to do with our LinkedIn profiles. <laughs> have you ever been to a memorial and somebody was eulogized as, you know, George was amazing. He increased market share by one third. <laughs> or Mary made SVP at 45. No, our eulogies are about all the other things, about what we value, about what, how we make people feel, what makes us laugh. Um, small kindnesses, lifelong passions. So it's actually fascinating that it is often these things that when we move into what Leslie Perlow has called time famine and feeling overwhelmed, it is these very little things that we abandon. When we move into that exhaust funnel, and then we feel, hey, we, I don't have time to read that novel. I don't have time to take the walk in the park, which are the very things that actually feed us in a way that makes us more effective. And as we look at this amazing turning point that we are in, we see people that we normally would not expect to come forward and talk about these things, like CEOs of big hedge funds coming out, not as being gay, but as being meditators. So we talked about the individual level, and now we have the company level. So this year, 2013, was the year, the tipping point, when uh, Ray Dalio, the CEO of uh, Bridgewater, the biggest hedge fund, came out and said, I've been meditating for over 30 years. I consider it an essential, essential element to my success. Mark Benny of the CEO of Salesforce, Mark Bertolini, the CEO of Aetna. I have them all in the book because I wanted to make it clear to intellectuals like all of you here that this is not some new agey, flaky California thing, <laughs> that this is really the way that we can thrive completely 
based on data and evidence. And I want to wrap things up by saying that the reason why the fourth pillar of this third metric of success is giving is once again because we have so much evidence that human beings are wired to give, that our genes reward us when we give, including all these um, inflammatory markers that are precursors of disease, which come down when we give. So it is really an amazing moment uh, to be alive and see ancient wisdom validated by modern science. And um, that's why I've tried to combine both in Thrive and to include both 55 pages of scientific endnotes and a lot of poetry. <laughs> because my hope is that Thrive will be a bridge between knowing what we should be doing, because I feel we now know what we should be doing, and actually doing it. And that's why at the end of each section, has three little microscopic steps that we can take right now. Three at the end of each section, four sections, a total of 12 steps. That was an accident. I didn't plan it that way. <laughs> that can actually transform the way we lead our lives without feeling that it has to be overwhelming. And because I know Jay will be coming up for our conversation that I'm really looking forward to, let me just and by talking about quickly about the role of technology in all this. Because basically, we have become addicted to technology. And that's one of the things we need to change. Because we now take better care of our smartphones than we take care of ourselves. Like if you have an iPhone, you begin to get alerts, like 20% of battery remaining, 15% of battery remaining. By, by about 12% of battery remaining, I get very nervous. And I begin to look around for re recharging shrines. <laughs> and they are everywhere, you know, in our homes, in our offices, in our, in, at the airports. Well, that's not how we treat ourselves. We have to be like at below zero battery remaining, crashing and burning before we pay any attention. So that's what needs to change. We need to put technology in its place. And that's why one of the small steps at the end of the wisdom chapter is at the end of the day, gently escort all your devices outside your bedroom. <laughs> because again, the science is conclusive. If you wake up and you look at your data and you are going to look at your data, your sleep is not going to be as recharging. And it's not going to be as deep. And isn't that really what we want? To be able to wake up fully energized, fully alive, fully vital. So basically, we have 30,000 days to play the game of life if we're lucky. And how we play it depends on what we value. And if we only value the first two metrics of success, money and power, it's like trying to sit on a two-legged stool. Sooner or later, we're going to fall off. Basically. We are either going to give ourselves that time for rest and renewal, or hospitals and doctors are going to impose it on us. 
we can look at the casualties all around us. We don't really need more evidence. What we need now is implementation. And that's why I'm delighted that I'm here at this temple of evidence and implementation. Thank you so much. So, Ariana, uh, this morning I was re thinking through the, the timeline of our friendship, uh, which goes back to around 1995, where I first got wind that you were giving speeches in which you talked about the Harvard School of Public Health's designated driver campaign. And then we were first introduced face-to-face -face by a, a leading businessman philanthropist, uh, Ray Chambers who was in the midst of putting together a summit in Philadelphia on volunteerism and service that General Colin Powell chaired and all the living US presidents participated in. And uh, he asked us to co-chair the communications task force that put that uh, summit together. And out of the summit came a large-scale media campaign, which helped to expand the number of young people in the United States who received the benefits of a formal mentoring program each year to expand it from 300,000 young people per year in 97 to in excess of 3 million per year today. Um, that notwithstanding, um, your book is really an indictment of how little we've accomplished and how much farther we have to go. And the key question I wanted to ask you about your book, I'm sorry, I'm getting a text message. <laughs> <laughs> ah, it's my 93-year-old mother. She wants us to take a selfie, all right? Ah. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. Before you figured out that that was a, a bit of a joke, good one or bad, um, <laughs> Some people in the audience, probably including the dean, got a little nervous. And that's because we have developed a clear yes. social norm that, you know, if you're at a Boston Symphony Orchestra concert and your cell phone uh, rings, the conductor will literally stop in his tracks, turn around, and glare at you. And the Boston Globe will report on it the next, <laughs> the, uh, the next day. But on the other hand, if I were to get behind the wheel of a car, remember, when we get behind the wheel, we're basically each a licensed engineer who's sitting atop a two-ton machine that's moving at one mile a minute uh, down a concrete slab. And we feel perfectly fine, many of us, to take out this cell phone then. And there's no social norm yet. And you write about distracted driving in your book, which is a topic that the Huffington Post and the Harvard School of Public Health are together collaborating to try to make a difference in, in, in addressing. Um, but the challenge we've got, and I think the challenge with everything in your book, is it's chock full of wisdom and knowledge and practical, hands-on advice. But if I can't even stop and pause long enough to drive a car, without, how am I going to pause long enough to meditate for 30 minutes each morning. And so what we really need to do, and you address it uh, brilliantly, I think, in your, in your book, and I'd like you to talk about it a little bit now, is it's going to require changing the culture, changing social norms, and creating a movement. So talk a little bit about that aspect of your book and your thinking. Well, fortunately, um, I think the movement 
has, is already happening. Um, it's just a question of how do we scale and accelerate it, and that's mm. what you are so good at, Jay. Mm. We, we don't need to create the movement, because we see at a many different levels these changes happening. We see individuals mm. um, making changes in their own lives. We see companies making changes. Now we have 35% of American corporations, um, medium and large size, mm. uh, introducing different forms of wellness and stress reduction practices. Um, and I'm not just talking about Silicon Valley yeah. pioneers. I'm talking about General Mills and Target mm -hmm. and Aetna. And at the same time, we have this overwhelming body of scientific evidence, which we didn't have before, um, that really confirm ancient wisdom about life. So that uh, when we look at how differently we operate, mm. when we are recharged and renewed, and how mm. much more effective we are as leaders, mm -hmm. um, we create these role models for mm -hmm. other people to follow. What we need is more stories and mm -hmm. a good narrative. Mm -hmm. yep. um, because a lot of the examples that people see now, I mean, I have two daughters who are in the other place. We will not mention the name. Um, when I see them and their generation, I see that a lot of the role models, a lot of the people they admire are people who've burnt out are very successful men with, with heart attacks in mm -hmm. the 50s. Or, you know, when Hillary Clinton uh, retired from the State Department, they asked her what she wanted to do. The first thing she said is, I want to be untired. And that's like something that we aspire to now, because some of us don't remember what it's like to be untired. And, uh, Changing the cultural norms, mm -hmm. you're absolutely right, is going to be key. Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to uh, texting and driving, mm -hmm. it, ha it has to become, it has to be seen the way you so successfully made drinking and driving seem. Mm -hmm. Because we're now finding out it's even worse yeah. than drinking and driving. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and it also takes us back to that place of technology in our lives. Um, I was uh, talking to Katie Couric on her show a few days ago, and she said that my mother is 91 years old, and uh, my sister and I went to visit with her. She came to sit in our bed at night and talk, and she said, I found myself taking out my phone and checking my texts. And I th thought to myself, and she said she felt so guilty, that there she is with her 91-year-old mother, whom she adores, she doesn't know how much longer she's going to be alive, mm. but her addiction makes her take the phone out. So we are talking about an addiction, yeah. and we can't just pretend that it's going to be easy. But if we just make, yeah. create these gaps, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this digital detoxes, I mean, I did a digital detox for a week over mm -hmm. the holidays, it was fantastic. You know, I discovered that you can actually eat a meal without Instagramming it. Did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> but so if we, if we integrate those pauses in our lives, mm -hmm. little by little, both at the individual level and at the cultural level, we'll, we'll see the changes that we need to see. Yes, and I think at a cultural level, we're going to need to make the point through laws and enforcement yes. 
that distracted driving is reckless endangerment. It doesn't warrant a $50 fine and you go on your way. But I want to um, invite those of you who have questions that you'd like to ask, please move to, there's a, a floor microphone in the left and the right aisles. And please move to one or the other. Uh, and we'll take your questions in order. And uh, Lisa, I also want, while people come to the microphone, I wondered whether there are one or two online questions that have been. We do have questions coming in from our live chat. And here's one from Massimiliano in Paris. We'll start with that one. <laughs> How about the issue of sleep and, in general, prevention of stress and burnout among physicians, in particular those in training? How could it be possible to combine these issues with the requirement of the medical system? So I'm sure there are many people including the dean, who have a lot more knowledge of this than I have. But from my own lay um, experience, it seems totally absurd. Am I being strong enough? <laughs> that, that we have um, residents expected to be actually on um, for that many hours without um, expecting them to be operating with in impaired mental faculties. I mean, again, the evidence of sleep deprivation on our mental capacity, on our gray matter, on our prefrontal cortex is so overwhelming that how can scientists mm -hmm. um, prepare a kind of schedule that uh, undermines mm. the capacity of, uh, of residents to perform at their best? What's the answer? Um, you know, one. One of the, in fact, the first joint forum with the Huffington Post was on sleep deprivation. Yes. And it included the effects on, on residents, and you're absolutely right. It was one of the first, now everyone knows why it was the first topic we chose for, <laughs> for our forum. It was exactly experts discussing the, the, what you said, it, it, it impairs uh, the performance. So, and, and norms are changing in, in, yes. in many hospitals regarding the, the speed of rotation, but it's still a, a big issue. Yeah, so again, as the dean said, norms are changing. So we're at the moment living um, during a period when two worlds coexist. Mm -hmm. um, I feel a little bit like we're going from the Middle Ages to the Renaissance. Yes. And you have examples of Middle Ages, really a barbaric way to operate. I mean, really, modern corporations are barbaric. You know, the expectation that you're supposed to be on 24-7, available over the weekends, in the investment banking industry, for example, which has led to even suicides. Until recently, we had Goldman Sachs issue a new directive to analysts saying you can take weekends off. You know, a radical idea, but <laughs> <laughs> nevertheless, better late than never. So we have the barbaric world coexisting with a new world. And you can see evidence of a world that I truly believe is dying mm -hmm. and the world that is being born. And um, depending on where you're looking, you can be optimistic or pessimistic. I'm deeply optimistic um, because I believe that if we make this conversation global and encourage each other and create our own little tribes and rituals to support these changes, mm -hmm. as well as laws when it yeah. comes to texting and driving, which actually endanger other lives. Yeah. 
um, then we are going to accelerate the shift that's already happening. Right. And we're going to have to do something about uh, the corporate sector's infatuation with in-car entertainment systems, which customers want and create. Uh, we're going to have to use policy, I think, to create a level playing field so that none of the major auto manufacturers need to go first yes. and lose competitive um, advantage. Let's take the first uh, question on the right. Good afternoon. My name is Magda Matake. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at FXB Center here and also a Roma advocate from Romania. So my question uh, refers to this community. In many European countries, many Roma women and girls, they are exposed to prejudice and stigmatization every day. And in Hungary, Czech Republic or Bulgaria, they are victims of hate crimes, of violence uh, in, in many instances. So their lives are overwhelming anyhow, and they are exposed to toxic, to toxic stress um, for different reasons than the people that we are talking about are exposed to. Uh, therefore, my question is, how do you, what is your advice for women and girls that have to deal with stigma and prejudice every day? and how women that are in a better position and successful women like yourself can help these women and can help the majority populations in European countries, for instance, to, to overcome stigma and make the world a better place for those who, become, who are part of minority groups. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, obviously, um, the reason why Giving is one of the four pillars of this third metric of success, well-being, wisdom, wonder, and giving, is because our life is not complete if we don't include a way to give to others. And supporting, other, uh, supporting women all around the world, I mean, um, President Carter's new book about the way uh, women continue to be abused, raped, um, all around the world is just a, a very, very important book coming out at this time. And, and I believe that when we see our lives as something more than just our own careers and um, our own um, achievements in our own professions, and we include what are we doing for others, um, there are going to be more women and more men whose lives are expanded to include making a difference. And then I think these tragedies around the world will have a better chance of, um, of uh, being eliminated faster. Great. Thank you. Let's take a question on the left side. Uh, yeah. Hi. Uh, I would like to thank you so much for coming in today and thank everybody who put this uh, event together. I almost didn't show up. I have lost uh, work the last past two days I have been home because I'm suffering from not sleeping very well. I sleep only three hours per night. <laughs> and uh, I feel like the universe kind of brought you here <laughs> to tell me again something that I knew all along, but I was not paying close attention. You're not sleeping because you, uh, you're working? I, 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 work at, uh, uh, I work at Harvard. I, I love it here. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. <laughs> what exactly do you work? Give us the <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, so here's the thing. I, um, 
I love here, I love Harvard. I, I, I'm very, very proud of work to Harvard. I never thought in my whole life that I could actually uh, accomplish so much. Um, and I had this feeling when I got here that I had to give a thousand percent and I have to be the best that I can be. And then, and then you feel tired. And I know I'm not the only one, so uh, I, okay, wait a second. I just wanna thank you um, because it is very, very brave that somebody like you, a public person with a lot to lose, come out and say that it is okay to sleep, that you need to take care of yourself, that, that you have to make time for the little things. So I just wanna say thank you. to say thank you to you because it, it takes courage uh, for you to come up and say that and I, I promise you you're going to help so many people who will see that because this is exactly um, this is exactly the question that a lot of people are asking themselves you know I want to give a thousand percent I want to do my best and so we really need now to look at the data and absolutely convince ourselves that we are going to be able to give more to our jobs if we nurture our human capital. You know, my book is dedicated to my mother, whom Jane knew. Yeah. And um, my mother, um, I remember all her life used to talk about the human capital. And one year, you know, we lived in a one-room apartment in Athens with no money, and this very successful Greek businessman came to dinner and he was going on about how he got his new contract to build a museum, et cetera. And my mother looked at him and you know, my mother had no sense of hierarchies. Everybody was the same. She just um, spoke the truth to everyone. So she looked at him and said, you know, I don't really care how well your business is. To me, it looks like you've made one too many withdrawals from your human capital bank and you have not made enough deposits. And you're going to pay a price, she said, like uh, Cassandra. <laughs> and you know, the man had a heart attack a, a month later. <laughs> you know, she saw it. She saw that he, was, that he was completely exhausted. And when we talk like that, we say exhausted, tired, and one good night's sleep will make us feel better. But our bodies are paying a price, and when stress becomes cumulative, the dean is nodding. I'm just keep looking at the, any time I mention anything medical, I look at the dean. <laughs> if he's nodding, I'm okay, you know? If he stops nodding, I will stop. <laughs> so it's the cumulativeness, the cumulative nature of stress that leads to disease. It's not, we're not going to eliminate stress. And Professor Mark Williams from Oxford, um, has done this study of gazelles, which I love. And I have gazelles as my screensaver now. They are my role model. Because gazelles like, run like crazy if there is danger, which would be the equivalent of, my, of us meeting a deadline, taking our finals, you know, completing a project. But then they graze. 
And when they graze, they are no longer in a fight or flight mode. We remain in a fight or flight mode almost all the time because even when we're not working, our minds move into worrying about the future, judging the past. And when we worry about the future, our bodies interpret it in the same way as if we're actually dealing with a danger. I quote Montaigne who said, there were many terrible things in my life, but most of them never happened. <laughs> but our bodies don't know that. So thank you so much. And if you want me to be your sleep sponsor, I'm very happy. I'm a very good there sleep sponsor. In fact, we should have sleep sponsors. So that let's say if uh, at night you're tempted to keep working even after you know it's going to be diminishing returns, and we know that, right? You know that feeling. You know, you know putting on another couple of hours isn't really going to be the best thing to do now, but we can't stop. We can call our sleep sponsor and just say, you know, this is what's happening. Or sometimes it can be you're feeling the urge to binge watch House of Cards. <laughs> you can call your sleep sponsor and the sleep sponsor can say, you know what, calm down, take a deep breath, close down your laptop and walk you through it. I'm only slightly joking because I think the truth is that the world, the way it is designed at the moment until we change it, is going to be constantly sending you signals to work more, to do more, to climb the ladder more. And so we need to create alternative little tribes and rituals to counteract the signals we are constantly getting. Um, Ian Thomas, you know, the writer, um, has this beautiful kind of prose poem where he says, every day the world will yank you by the hand and say, this is important, and this is important, and this is important, and you must worry about this, and you must worry about that, and you must worry about that, and you must yank your hand back and put it on your heart and say, no, this is important. Well said. So, you know, our, the dean would tell you that public health is all about prevention. And that's what your book is all about, prevention. And you may not call yourself this, but you're, I hereby proclaim you a leading public health professional. And thank you. <laughs> now let's take the next question on the right. Thank you for being here, too. Uh, I think, you know, the, the question is that we, many of us are in this vortex of loving our work, loving our families, loving our friends, and loving many of the things that we do 150% in our life. And so the question is, how do you then change the way that you function and learn to love taking care of yourself as much as you love these other five or six pieces in your life. Mm -hmm. And for me, I found yoga. Um, I think uh, it's a philosophy of life that does embrace many of the things, including meditation, that you've, you've mentioned. Um, it, that's not for everybody, but there has to be a, a love or a, an appreciation that one finds uh, for taking care of themselves feeling so much better, being able to accomplish so much more as a result of doing that, that that in itself becomes something that one gravitates to in their lives. That's absolutely true. Um, 
and I completely identify. I mean, that's exactly what happened to me. You know, I loved building the Huffington Post. I loved my daughters. I, and you kind of forget, it's not just to take care of yourself, but forget that there is that other dimension that you begin to be completely disconnected from. Um, I write in the book about my father, who was a concentration camp survivor. He was a brilliant intellect, but he also was a gambler. He was drinking too much. He was caught up in the world. And um, he got diabetes, lost his eyesight at the end of his life. And, um, and suddenly, you know, we started having this conversation about how his inner world was like a deserted garden. He had not spent any time there. So we all have this inner world. And sometimes we look around and we forget that we have this inner world. And whether you are a spiritual person or not, it doesn't matter. That world is there. And now more and more people recognize that even if they're atheists, there's a whole mystery to life. And exploring it just adds a dimension that is so important. I mean, you know everybody's fascinated with exploring outer space, I'm much more fascinated with exploring inner space. Because it's an amazing journey. And very often, the entry point of this, on this journey, as I said, is something bad happening. But it doesn't have to be. Thank you. Uh, Lisa, another question from online? Yes, here's one that's on a subject we haven't talked too much about yet. I'm interested in research on the links between altruism and giving and happiness. What is some of the research in this area that you found to be the most compelling? Thank you. What a great question. Um, some of the most important research on this that I quote in the book is from Richard Davidson, the professor of neuroscience at the University of Wisconsin. And uh, he actually calls giving a shortcut to happiness. And, um, and the I mean, all the surveys and all the scientific evidence is overwhelming here, including giving students $100 to spend on themselves and, a, and another group $100 to spend on others and seeing who is happier at the end of it. But also seeing what happens to the brain and the plasticity of, a, of, of the brain when we are engaged in giving. And that's why at the end of the giving section, I start with a very, very small step, which is beginning to make a personal connection with people in our daily lives that we would normally take for granted. You know, the checkout clerk, the barista in the coffee shop, the cleaning crew. And it's amazing the difference it makes in terms of us being fully present, in terms of us being more alive when we make these connections with others. Again, just one more thing about my mother. Um, and her lack of hierarchies. I remember uh, when I was um, living in London and dating a Tory member of parliament, it must have been a moment of sleep deprivation. <laughs> <laughs> and one night he brought Ted Heath, who was then prime minister, to dinner. And my mother was always in the kitchen. And something went wrong with this. Um, the sink, and she had the plumber come and fix it. And she asked the plumber what he thought of the prime minister. And the plumber said, not very much. He hasn't been very good for working people. And my mother immediately said, oh, let me just bring him here so you can talk to him and you can tell him directly. 
And that was her view. My mother, wherever you were, everybody was a human being. And bringing that into her interactions just transformed her daily life and started that process of giving in a very natural way. Um, so we don't have to immediately think that we have to give up our jobs and go to one that will start an orphanage, although I greatly admire people who do. We can integrate giving in our daily life in organic, simple ways. Thank you. And you know, having uh, been reading through your book over the last couple of days, I was driving over to the school this morning, and there was this guy who tried to cut me off. And I wasn't going to, at first, I wasn't going to let him cut me off. But maybe influenced by your book, he clearly had this need to go. And I waved him on with a smile, and he waved back, and I felt good. Uh. <laughs> it was actually a good, pleasant That's feeling. That's great. <laughs> we have time <laughs> for one last question. I'm sorry. Thank you very much for coming. And I think my question um, follows up to the previous question in terms of we need um, a shift at the individual level in terms of what we're thinking and our priorities, but in public health, we always kind of take the social ecological viewpoint. And I think at the social level or, you know, our corporations, there's this kind of new um, interest in decreasing the importance of telecommuting and that people need to be in the office and we need to have bodies together, which um, may impact some of our sleep and time that we'd like to spend with families. And I was just wondering, you know, at the corporation level, at the company level, you know, whether it's telecommuting or some other policies, what do you think um, could happen there to increase our own well-being? Oh, absolutely. In fact, there are a lot of contrary uh, tendencies also in, in, um, at the company level, because uh, especially when it comes to women, um, a, a lot of women, 43% of women leave their jobs um, after they have children. And only 40% of those return full time. And there's a whole movement of, about project-based work. So a lot of women, very talented women with great degrees, including from Harvard. Um, in fact, I'm quoting one of them in the book. Say, you know, give us projects to do and we'll do them. Don't tell us come to the office, go into meetings, give FaceTime. That's changing in a lot of companies and they are seeing great results. Again, you can also give me a lot of examples of the opposite, where come into the office, be here 12 hours a day. But increasingly, we are realizing that being in the office without being fully present is not helping anybody. You know, we are paying people for their judgment, their creativity, their innovation, not their stamina. <laughs> and uh, I think when leaders are um, also demonstrating that this has a positive impact on the bottom line, the changes will, will happen faster. But I think women have a big role to play here for two reasons. One, I'm going to quote one more medical statistic, so I'm looking at the dean. Um, one is that um, women in stressful jobs have a 40% greater risk of heart disease and a 60% greater risk of diabetes because women internalize stress differently. Men find it easier to just go watch a game, brush it off. You know, we have to sort of wrestle it into the ground because we're better people, you know. <laughs> so we, we actually can't afford not to change the world. 
And that's really the third women's revolution, the first being getting us the vote, the second equal access to all jobs in the top of every field. The third is to say we don't want just to be on top of the world. We need to change it. Because the way it is now is not working for women, for men, for polar bears. And incidentally, speaking of environmental degradation, I really am convinced that burnt out people will continue to burn up the planet. It's like there is a deep connection between the two that it's about time we make. Thank you. Um, before we all say thank you to Ariana for coming today and for sharing all of this richness with us, <coughs> um, two brief announcements. Uh, the first is on the 28th of this month, the Huffington Post and the Harvard School of Public Health will co-sponsor an event here at, at the noon hour, more or less, um, on distracted driving, featuring US Secretary of Transportation, Anthony Fox, talking about the federal leadership role in addressing the problem. And secondly, um, some of you are lucky, that is, at your seats randomly, you've got a square envelope, which you can open now. And for those of you who happen to sit in the right place, that entitles you to, if you go up to the cashier's office right outside this hall, a free copy of Ariana's book. <laughs> and Ariana will be in the lobby just outside, signing books and talking for those of you who haven't had a chance uh, to ask your and, question. And I would like, I would like to, I would like to invite, uh, I would like to invite all of you to continue this conversation online by writing either about your stories of burnout or about how you thrive, what are your small rituals, little practices that help you thrive. We started um, by getting a Tom Dunn. Tom Dunn is an editor at the Huffington Post and a Harvard graduate. And he started a series of asking Harvard students to write about how they thrive. We had some beautiful pieces come in about prayer, morning prayer at the Memorial Church. Um, a lot of other unusual things that Harvard students do to thrive. You love them. So please uh, send us yours. Uh, to make it super easy, I'm going to give you my email address so you can send it directly, uh, ariana at huffingtonpost.com. And I just want to end by thanking so much the dean, Jay, and the school for collaborating with the Huffington Post on so many important initiatives, most recently. And please join me in thanking Ariana for everything she has. This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing The Forum.